Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Ava Thompson Greenwell, been there, done that. Since 1993, my guest today has taught broadcasting, writing, reporting, and producing at Medill Northwestern University, which is where she received her BSJ and MSJ, which by the way, and I did not know this, is Bachelor and Master's of Science in Journalism. Ava has a PhD in African-American Studies, also from Northwestern, and has held several administrative positions, including Associate Dean for Curriculum, Director of Teaching Television Program, and Director of the South African Journalism Residency Program. Outside academia, Ava has been a freelance correspondent for PBS and WGN-TV. She's worked as a reporter at TV stations in Tampa, Minneapolis, and Evansville. Oh, there's more. Ava directed and produced Mandela in Chicago, a documentary about that city's anti-apartheid movement. It was selected to be part of the Rapid Lion Film Festival in South Africa. Last, but so not least, Ava is the author of Ladies Leading, the Black Women Who Control Television News. The book goes behind the camera to document the racism and sexism rampant in TV networks and explores the history and experiences of Black women who achieve positions in management in the field. So let's meet and get to know Ava Thompson-Greenwell. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today from Chicago. Thanks for having me, Sandy. I really appreciate it. So Ava, where did journalism factor into your life? When you were a little kid, did you start your own newspaper? Well, not quite, but I was 12 years old. Um, I remember uh, growing up on the south side of Chicago, and I attended this program called the Gifted Center at Chicago State University. And actually, some of the people I met there today are still my friends. Can you imagine from 12 years old? Well, you don't look that old. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. Um, So we had to do this career development project. And the question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so I remember having to look up in the occupational handbook this career called broadcast journalism. You know, I I didn't know anybody in my family, anybody really in my neighborhood who had been a journalist or let alone a broadcast journalist. And so as part of this project, we not only had to research it, but we had to actually talk to somebody who was doing that job. So since I didn't know anybody, I really thought, okay, who could I call? And so what struck me was there was a Black woman on the CBS local station in Chicago. Her name was Edwina Moore. And I actually got up the gumption when I think about it now. Um, you know, I guess it was pretty bold of me at 12 to call this reporter up. And I say, agree. I think so And too. say, you know, how did you get to where you are? Wow. And she told me the story of having been an English teacher because, again, at that time, you know, back in the probably, I guess, late 60s, early 70s, you know, news organizations were sort of plucking people from a variety of fields other than journalism because that was not a route that African-Americans had necessarily taken, you know, in college. They weren't studying it necessarily. And um, they certainly weren't working for, quote unquote, mainstream news organizations. Certainly the Black press had been a presence in their lives. But after the Kerner Commission report from 1968, a lot of news organizations knew they had to do better when it comes to recruitment of African-Americans. So this woman had been an English teacher, and as such, uh, she was hired to be an on-air reporter at WBBM, CBS2. Well, that's huge. In Chicago. Yeah. So I called her up and I said, you know, what? I want to do what you do. Um, what should I do? And she said, the first thing you need to do when you get to high school is join the high school newspaper. 
Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I did when mm-hmm. I became a freshman at Whitney Young High School. Well, actually, even before then, I participated in a an urban journalism program. Um, this was between my eighth grade and ninth grade year. And it was uh, a citywide newspaper called New Expression. And New Expression attracted students from all over the city. And so the beauty about that was we had an editor, Ann Hines, who used to be a nun, by the way. And we would call it sitting in the hot seat whenever we sat down for her <laughs> to edit our pieces because there'd be a lot of red, you know, on, on <laughs> yes, the document. Yes, marked up. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I always had that queasy feeling when it was time for my yes. pieces to be edited. But but yes. be that as it may, it was still a very... Um, a very enriching experience for me to be connected to students from all over the city of Chicago. And then once I joined the high school newspaper staff, I eventually became the features editor as a senior and actually had an advice column called Ask Ava. So uh, there you go, right? Um, Uh An advice column. And so that was really my journey to really starting to really love journalism and this idea that I could ask people questions for my job, sure. I, could be, I could be nosy and get paid uh-huh, for it. Uh-huh. And so once I got to college at Northwestern as an undergrad, you continue to develop. But I really knew that it wasn't print journalism that I was most interested in. I was interested in broadcast journalism, in particular television journalism. And so that's why I ended up going on for the extra year in the master's program and working really toward being an on-air television news reporter. So that's that's kind of my history, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the short version of mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But um, my husband always tells me, you're the only person I know who is still doing what they said they wanted to do at age 12. We have a couple of things in common in the sense, although I am older than you are, but I have a career in journalism. It's always been radio because my standard line has always been, forgive the corniness, I have a face for radio. And oh, yes. so, and I've heard that, I've heard that phrase a million before. times, right? It's not an but original you, But you do have a great voice, right? You have a fantastic voice and that's one of you know, that's no longer the only requirement, thank God, right? That we can get people from a more diverse You're background. You're absolutely right. And You're absolutely you. right. And, and not that I capitalized on that necessarily. I got a BFA. I wasn't sure what it was I wanted to do. And not like you, because you were much more focused. I kind of fell into this. And I think that was a start for me. The voice made a difference also because there weren't a lot of women with deep voices. And so my news career started in FM radio. And I don't know about Chicago, but I would have to assume it's the same as in New York City. What news are you doing in five minutes with the disc jockey interrupting you? And it's more, not fluff, but it was, I mean, we did cover big stories, but there were no reporters in an FM station. And so you know, so, so you had to rip and read, right? Have a, a little bit and of wire I also copy. Wrote, mm-hmm. Right. But that was not necessarily my strongest suit. And I was just on the phone before with a colleague. I don't know if you've ever heard of 1010 Winds Radio, which is in New York City. It was the largest all news radio station in the country. And that's where I wound up in my career. And this, I can't believe I'm making this about me. And going from FM to AM, it was a really big step. Its slogan was all news all the time. Why am I saying this to you? While there were women on the air back then, we were not ubiquitous, but 
not for nothing, Ava, there were no women of color. And I don't know that it's changed all that much in terms of radio. And I want to talk about television more because that's, sure. you know, much more in your face. So on some level, for me, I think I was able to capitalize on the lack of gender. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think to your point, you know, a lot of the things in the book uh, certainly apply particularly to television news, both local and national, but also uh, some of these stories apply across media and also across race. I know that there are white women also who go, oh, that, that sounds familiar to me. That happened to me. Uh, but the point that I'm making is that, you know, when you come from two historically marginalized identities, then the impact on a Black woman is going to be greater That's than it sure. is typically on others. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, what I'm saying in the book I'm arguing is that, you know, here we have a group that makes up maybe the smallest percentage of managers in that particular field, yet they may be heavy lifting a lot of the work that others are not doing. And so we need to be, we need to recognize that. And mm -hmm. also some of the solutions so that they don't have to carry such a heavy load Again, it's that rising tide lifts all, all boats. You know, when we can take off some of the burden and share it more with others in the newsroom, then we're more likely to keep these women in the business longer because they have value and their history in the industry should also have value. Absolutely. But in your case, after you got your undergraduate and then your doctorate, where did you think you were going with that? Because as I mentioned in the introduction, that your PhD is in African-American studies. So were you marrying both of these career paths back then? Good question. So I got the PhD much later in life after I'd already been teaching journalism for almost two decades. Uh, but my thought was, why get a PhD in journalism? You already have that, for the most part, based on experience get it in something else. And I also always knew that I really wanted to study these women behind the scenes. You know, having been in front of the camera, I knew that I had worked with very few women who looked like me behind the scenes who were managers. The other thing that was the impetus for me is having been the director of what we then called the teaching television program, where students would go and work as junior reporters at small market stations, I was seeing a lot of white women ascend to the position of news director, which is the top editorial position in these small markets. And we know that the trajectory typically in television news is you work in a small market, then you work in a medium-sized market, then you work, you know, into a large market and then maybe a network. You know, that's that's often the trajectory that a lot of people aspire to. So I'm seeing white women move into these positions so that they become a part of that pool that mm. eventually could lead to those top positions. But I'm not seeing women of color in those positions. Right. And so that was a question for me. Again, curiosity was I knew about my experience on air. I was seeing white women ascend to some of these positions, not seeing women of color. And I thought, OK, where are these women? And so I'm curious who they are. The other thing is I would see some of these women at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention every year. I've been attending those since, I think, 1988. And so I would see some of them, especially at the job fairs, recruiting young reporters and always just wondered, okay, what was life, what's life like for you behind the scenes when you're the person who's running things and in charge? So the most difficult part of doing this work, uh, especially when I started the dissertation, was actually getting a count 
on the number of women who are actually in this position because sure. nobody keeps track yeah, of right. the number. Uh, so when yeah. you when you look at the studies, even as I say, um, Black women, Lat- Latina women are invisible in terms of the numbers because the studies look at either gender or race and ethnicity, but not both, not yes. the intersection of that. So we know how many uh, women news directors there are in the country. We know how many African-American or Latinx or Asian-American or Native American overall, but we don't know if we wanted to break that down and say, how many Native American women are there as news directors in television stations? We don't have those numbers. And so part of this study was to really lay a foundation for an archive of who these women are. And therefore the hope would be that some other researcher is going to come behind me and then really begin to delve into and interrogate even more mm-hmm. some of the nuances related to identity and how they impact a person in the newsroom and how the newsroom is impacted by them. So personalize that when it comes to impact. You were not ubiquitous. Were you welcome? Did you feel comfortable? As I mentioned, that you did work for PBS and WGN, which is a station in Chicago, as well as reporting in other stations. So clearly you moved around, physically moved around. Yes. And did you, I don't want to use the word marginalized, but I want to use the word, did you feel lonely? Yes. Working at the PBS station, um, whether it was the one here in Chicago, WTTW, uh, as a freelancer, WGN. But more importantly, those were freelance positions. When I worked full time at stations, for example, WCCL TV in Minneapolis, WFLA TV in Tampa, Florida. And, you know, being the solo and being the only can be lonely. And it's almost like, okay, we can't have more than one. You know, we've we've got to have one, but we can't have more than yeah, that's our quota. We filled our quota. We filled Mm -hmm. our quota. Um, And so, sure. I mean, the the truth of the matter is when you work in news, you know, you're busy every day, all day, every minute. So you're moving from the time you get there to the time you go home. So you don't have time to dwell on it. But I think looking back on it, it can be very lonely. And I think the the real question is, are these welcoming environments for the people who are there? That's really the question. I always felt like, yes, I'm here, uh, I'm representing, I'm working, and this is great, and I'm getting some wonderful experience. Uh, Did I ever feel 100% welcome? Probably not. Why'd you give it up? Actually, I knew that I wanted to start a family. So when I started my family, I have three adult children now. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to be their parent, not somebody else. And I knew that working in news meant that, you know, you'd be called in at any time and you'd you'd miss out on some of Mm -hmm. those really key family events. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want somebody else raising my children. So I decided to go into the academy where I'd have more flexibility for my schedule. But I also felt that it allowed me to, you know, keep one toe in and one toe out. You know, I have students now, probably close to a thousand students that I've touched over these last nearly 30 years of teaching. Mm -hmm. And that is very gratifying to see them move up, to be successful, and to know that I had just a little bit of. It doesn't have to be just a little bit. It's more than a little bit. Yeah, just had a little bit. I mean, they're smart, smart anyway, but I had some influence on that. And so 
I can continue to do my work in some ways through them. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that to me has been one of the most gratifying things about being um, in the academy is working with students and seeing them grow and learn and develop and just just be fantastic uh, individuals, but also fantastic journalists. Was it a natural progression going from associate dean for curriculum to the director of the teaching television program and, and director of the South African Journalism Residency Program? Yeah, talk about that. Did you give birth to that? <laughs> I did not. Actually, my predecessor, Lauren Guglielmi, who was the dean at the time, uh, brought the program to Medill Northwestern from another university, USC, and some, some other places. But it's his baby, but he allowed me to be a part of the raising you of did that baby. Care. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, he he retired a couple of years ago and in 2014 said, hey, you know, um, I'm going to be retiring soon. I'd love for you to be the co-director along with uh, Doug Foster, who also wrote a book called After Mandela. And so I said, I don't know anything about South Africa. He said, that's okay. I didn't know anything about it either before mm. I started. And so I think he said, I think you would be great at it. And so that has been a wonderful opportunity. I've traveled to South Africa at least um, 11 times. Oh, wow. The documentary that you mentioned was really based on Chicago activists, but there were many South Africans who visited Chicago many times, who even lived in Chicago, who are now back in South Africa. And so to get their reflections and their perspectives on the kind of activism they did in the 80s and the early 90s was just, I mean, it was a mind-blowing kind of experience. And the research that I did, it took me, you know, about four years to do the documentary. And some of the research that I learned in terms of the historic relationship between the United States and South Africa just blew my mind. So, for example, most people have heard of the Fisk Jubilee Singers, you know, in Nashville. But many people have not heard of the Hampton Jubilee Singers, which is one of the other historically Black colleges in Virginia. That particular choral group was actually traveling to South Africa in the 1890s. Get out. Get out. That's right. When I learned that, I was like, what? Why didn't I know that? I never heard that before. And then when I was able to document it in the archive, um, one of the universities has photographs of this choir singing and uh, Orpheus McAdoo, who was the director of the choir. So they're spending five years in the 1890s. That's crazy. In South Africa, uh, Black newspapers also being sold in Cape Town and Johannesburg, again, in the 1800s, early 1900s. African-American missionaries with the AME Church sending their pastors, uh, their pastors' wives, other missionaries to South Africa to not only teach the Bible, but also to teach the ABCs, just to mm -hmm. teach them how to read. Mm -hmm. There were photographs of people in the AME church in South Africa teaching children. So when I found those- What a discovery. I was just, I was blown away. But it also reminded me how important it is to document, right? That that archive is so important. If we don't document, then it's like it didn't exist. And so I would never have known about those particular groups their time spent in South Africa, their connection to South Africa. The other thing I found was, you know, we've all heard of the spirituals, you know, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, those kinds of things. And so I, I just did a quick Google search and I found 
a group in South Africa singing some of those spirituals. Now, I had traveled to South Africa before, but had never heard. And they were actually on a morning show, basically promoting, I would say, a, a musical that they were going to be doing in one of the major venues in South Africa. And so they did a little uh, tidbit of some of the songs that they Jeez. were singing. And they were dressed in the attire of that time period. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a history that South Africans know, but that Americans don't right. know. Right. And, you know, that's that's a common theme, right? And a lot of when you study history and, and go to these countries, you realize they know a lot more about us. It's like we well-kept secrets. Them. Yes. Yes. But I'm struck, Ava, by your ability to sashay from one area to another. It was all very natural acts for you, whether it would be administratively or teaching. And and for you, and I want to talk to you about directing and producing Mandela in Chicago. What made you think you could direct a, a film? So having worked on Deadline and covered many minute 30 stories, yes, ma'am. you know, <laughs> I, I felt as though this was just an extension of what I had already done. So I also saw among our students, more and more students who were really interested in working, doing documentaries. And I knew that I probably would be tapped to teach some of those classes and you can't teach what you don't know. And so you've got to have some experience there. Sure. And so um, I just went at it. I also have to give credit to Cartoon Films, which is based here in Chicago, well known. They started a Diverse Voices in Documentary Fellowship Program, which I was a part of uh, back in 2016. And so they were very helpful in sort of, because I, I had nothing when we started. Some of, We had 16 fellows. Some of the fellows had already done some filming. They had already, you know, had a, a seed of uh, a film. I came with nothing but an idea. But because of my journalism background, I think that really helped me know this is what you need to do. This is what you have. And you had the street cred. Right. I had the street cred already. I was already traveling to South Africa by then. So I knew that I could incorporate this in the class as well so that as I'm learning, the students are learning. And interestingly enough, having finished the documentary, uh, it aired on the PBS station here in Chicago in February of this year. I then went and allow the students to have access to all the footage, particularly the footage that I didn't use, so that they could create their own mini documentaries. So again, students couldn't go out because wow. of COVID, right. but I was able to use the documentary in my teaching in a very, very explicit way. It's hands-on not just way. that you're watching it. It's very hands-on. Mm-hmm. You're now looking at all of this footage, maybe from a different perspective. You know, they're in a different generation. Um, how would you, you know, put together, if you only had 10 minutes to do it, my doc was 50 minutes. And they did a fabulous job. And actually, I'm going to be teaching that class again this fall. This time, hopefully, the students will be able to go out and do some shooting on their own. But they'll have some basic footage to sort of begin the conversation with. And and I think the greatest tribute to me was when one of the students at the end of the class said, I just got the latest uh, Barack Obama book. And I opened it up. And I realized that in the first chapter, about four of the people that you interviewed for the documentary were mentioned in the book. Yeah. Wow. 
And again, wow, these wow, are wow. Chicago people. And mm-hmm, so that was mm-hmm. that was the greatest compliment because, you know, Chicago gets this rap of being this violence. Yes, the torn, South Side, right. That's all everybody ever talks all, about. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm a native South Sider. And um, yes, there is violence going on there. Yes. But you got to look at the history of, well, why is that? the disinvestment that has occurred in certain neighborhoods. But as a native Southsider, you know, I'm sometimes offended by that because not that's not the only thing that's happening on the South side. There are right. some beautiful things. So let's balance it more. And that's where, like I said, the, the journalist in me says with this documentary, I can do this. You know, this is just an extension. The journalist in me doing live shots says, as far as teaching goes, well, that's what you do as a journalist all the time. Right, right? It's right. the first draft of history. You're educating people. So it really was not a um, a difficult pivot to go from journalist to in the classroom, to administrator, to filmmaker, to book author. I have to say, all of these things stretched me and the book stretched me as well, but in a good way. Before we get to the book, I have one more question about the film. Did did you act as director and producer and writer? You only have one head. How many hats do you own? Well, you know, I always try to involve students because if you if you get a chance to watch the film and you can go to WTTW and Google the name of the film, Mandela in Chicago, and you can watch it. Uh, at the end of the credits, you will see quite a few students of mine who were involved. So I had students helping with transcriptions. I had students doing research. And so I really tried to involve them in the process because I wanted them, I wanted this to be more than just about me. And I knew also that without their help, I wouldn't be able to finish it, right? Because there's some tedious things that have to be done when you're producing a documentary. And one is just creating transcripts for 25, you know, 30 to 45 minute interviews. That's a feat in and of itself. Going through the archives, archival footage, you know, it's very expensive. But so many things happened to me with this documentary that I I say is truly God. It's divine intervention. And the reason I say that is because there are a lot of things that could have been doors closed and it would have taken me longer. It would have cost me more. But there were doors opened all the time. So one example would be the archival footage that was used in the documentary. First of all, remember I said I had no footage, so I didn't even know this archival footage existed. I was invited to a holiday party by one of the persons in the documentary who said, hey, all the people from our era, they're going to be there. So you should come to this party because you get to meet all these people who you might want to interview. Great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the first persons there was the archivist for Columbia College. And she said, oh, by the way, we're just starting this website where we're going to release all this footage from protests that were happening around the city, anti-apartheid protests and groups. And we're going to release this footage in a month. And I was like, "Okay, there's my footage. There's my archival footage. Boy, were the stars aligned. And when I got to Columbia College to actually look through the footage, she said it was about 40 hours worth of footage how much do you need? And so I said, well, could I have it all? And she said, sure, you can have it all. So obviously I didn't use all of that, but I needed to go through that. So that's tedious work, but it's necessary work to figure out what's really going to be important. And in addition to that, the man, Mike Elliott, who shot that footage was at that time, the 
unofficial videographer of the movement in Chicago. Oh, wow. Wow. In February of this year, he was again able to see all of his footage come to fruition in the documentary. Sadly, he died about three months later. And so as did four people during the course of the film, four individuals have passed away. And so again, my goal was always, let's document this history. They had never told the story before Mm -hmm. after 30 Mm -hmm. years. If we don't document it now, we're going to lose these people. And in fact, that is what has been happening. And so what really makes me proud and happy is that I was able to interview at least four of those individuals about the work and hard work that they did to keep this movement going in the city of Chicago. And so that to me is, is a legacy that their family members also will have, but more importantly, the city of Chicago will have that documentary as really as a celebration of the work that they did to keep the anti-apartheid movement alive and well in the city of Chicago. I have said this so often because I believe it and it's true, how much we can learn from documentary films. They should be part of school curriculum to expose and enlighten. And the fact is that you took a subject that maybe people peripherally knew about, but here it is, folks. And that's huge. You know, there is, Sandy, a new generation of people who they don't really, they've heard of Nelson Mandela, but they're not quite sure who he is. Really? I, I mean, but think about it. If if we're not teaching it to them, yeah, where they duh, where they, right. where where are they going to get the information from? Right. The that's what they worry death. about when it comes to the Holocaust. That Absolutely. that's just going to fade away, and nobody's going to know about this massive you know, historical event. Yeah, Absolutely. you're right. You're and right. So it's so it's so important. I live in Evanston, where there's a pretty significant Jewish population, and so there are a lot of synagogues that say, you know, never forget this. This there's truth to that. It's easy from generation to generation just to kind of forget about these things. And we don't want to forget because when we forget, we know that history repeats itself. Repeats itself, right? For sure. I mean, literally. Yep. And if, if we're to ever prevent that negative history from repeating itself, we've got to know. We've got to know all the tricks. We've got to know how it is that people can be enslaved, how it is that people could could be Uh, victims of a Holocaust. I mean, we've got to know that and we've got to know it in some depth. We can't know it just surface level. Well, because there's so many deniers in this day and age. So it was an important act for you. It was a public service. Mandela in Chicago is a public service. Absolutely. And and in some ways, it's, it's a perfect transition to the book. It's a public service, right? So these are women who had never talked about their experience. And that's one of the reasons why I kept them anonymous. You know, when I originally, um, you know, sort of shopped it around and sent the manuscript, one of my friends said, mm, this is interesting, but it would be really great if you could name the women. And I said, the problem with that is that these women would not have been as honest as they were with me had I named them. They took their clothes off, huh? Exactly. And and knowing that that they're exposing themselves meant that, you know, it could have impacted their current employment. It could have impacted their future employment. It could have impacted their career and just in terms of not the trajectory, but but also in terms of how they were viewed. So I wanted them to be as honest as possible. Remember, they didn't know me from anywhere. So they had to be able to trust, trust. Mm-hmm. that 
when I was telling them I would keep them anonymous, that I would actually do that. Now, if women want to reveal themselves at some point, certainly they can do that. But even to this day, um, it's really important for me not to reveal their names unless they choose that for themselves. And so this transition from the documentary and also working on the book at the same time was really about lifting up, highlighting a group that historically has been in the shadows. And in particular, women who are behind the scenes, um, I say, have what is one of the most important types of power, and that's invisible power, right? We think about the people in front of the camera and how, oh, well, you know, you've got this person, you've got that person, things have really improved. But the truth is the people in front of the camera have very little power, very little control over the stories they do, over how long they're going to work there, over their schedule. It's the people behind the scenes, the managers, they have the true power and the control. And the fact that we have a small percentage of Black women who are now in those positions means that there can be a different kind of impact in the newsroom when those women are there. And so that was my goal is really to lift them up, to highlight them, but also to explore what it is they do differently for the industry. What they bring to the table. What they bring to the table, but also what is the impact of the industry on them? Because they experience all kinds of microaggressions, as you said in your introduction, sexism, racism, all kinds of isms. And that's on top of just being a boss and having to you know, lead uh, people in an editorial venture. And so those are all the things that I really wanted to explore, but also wanted to share. And also in some ways, I am codifying their experience. You know, often people would say, oh, well, I, I didn't know it was like that. I didn't know it was that bad. You know, when we started covering stories like Trayvon Martin and all the Black men who are followed by police, um, you know, you can have white colleagues who say, well, I, I didn't I didn't know that happened. I, mm-hmm. I was I was unaware. Mm-hmm. And so now you're aware. And once you are aware, hopefully you begin to think about these systems differently. The women in your book came from all over the, the country? Yes, came from all over the country and the Caribbean. And the Caribbean. And what is your takeaway in the sense, do you feel validated? Do you feel emboldened? Do you feel optimistic? Or is this the same old, same old? So I have a mixed feeling. And I think if we look at the studies, the surveys, like the Radio Television Digital News Association, RTDNA, they do an annual survey of Uh, the improvements or lack of improvement in terms of just the numbers of people who are in these management positions. And again, like I said before, they don't do an intersectional look. They look at race and gender. And so what we see in those studies is that there has been some improvement, but the improvement is still small. So some years things go up maybe by a percentage, other years they might stay the same, other years it might be a little retrenchment. So it's glacial? Yes, yes, exactly. So when we look at a lot of these organizations saying, well, we want to reach parity, you know, the ASNE, American Society of Newspaper Editors, you know, started out saying by the year 2000 and other organizations went forward saying, yes, we want parity in newsrooms based on the population. Well, that deadline came and went and those organizations missed that deadline. So we are now 21 years later and 
we still have not reached parity in the newsrooms. And what I mean by that is, are the newsrooms reflective of the populations that they serve, both in front, front facing, as well as behind the scenes? And the answer is generally no, depending on where you are. Even in a place like Chicago, which you know has a pretty significant, though still segregated, yep. Um, yep. population of African Americans, whites, uh, Latin Americans, and of course Asian Americans make up a smaller percentage. Native Americans even smaller. But the the fact is, those newsrooms still are not reflective of the population where we live, and it's beyond that, right? It's like once we get to that then we can really talk about the work that needs to be done because there's also, those groups are not homogenous. And so we really need to think about the diversity within the diversity. We we can't even get to that level because we're still talking about, let's just get some numbers in there that are reflective of the population. And then we have to make sure that they feel welcome and we have to make sure that they're able to bring their whole selves to the table when they're, you know, suggesting ideas or when they're critiquing even the organization that they work for. So this book really, again, tries to highlight some of those conflicts also that the women experience. And your question originally was, you know, is it better? So the answer is some, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, again, with the cliches for me, the more things change, the more they say the same. Absolutely. But at least we're, we're having these conversations. I mean, one of the things that I do with my students is we have to train the next generation to ask these kinds of questions and to be thinking in this way. And I know that we're having some impact when a white student says to me, you know, I noticed there was no racial diversity in that group that did X, Y, Z. That to me is progress, right? So the onus is not just on people of color to recognize that. The onus is on all people, regardless of their identities, to recognize it, but also to understand why it matters and why it makes a difference. Ironically, I was just reading in today's Times that the Golden Globes is going to start instituting a series of reforms. That's the Hollywood Foreign Press Association that really got called on the carpet for their lack of diversity. Yeah, we're going to, we, we heard you, we're going to change it. I'm not disparaging that, but at some point, it really is move the needle. It's slow. It's slow. It's glacial. And so the question is, what would it really take to have some kind of revolutionary action? And I'm not sure what the answer is, because if I knew that answer, right, um, I think I would have put it in the book. But what would it really take? Because we've been at this now for more than 50 years. But I do have some hope, I, and it's tempered hope that I'm seeing small changes among the next generation of people who will be running newsrooms. Well, you're helping to perpetuate that. Exactly. I'm, I'm, my goal is to, you know, you have to change it as that next generation comes along. Mm-hmm. They're going to be different, I hope, overall. Now, obviously, you're still going to have some people because we know what the country is right now in terms of the split. Mm-hmm. We also know that those people have children and grandchildren who also may believe the same thing that they believe. So so we're not saying is that everybody has to believe the same thing, but what we're saying is we need that balance um, to really have a healthy democracy and to have healthy newsrooms. We need people from diverse backgrounds and also diverse ways of thinking also in those newsrooms and in those meetings. 
Ava, this has been so inspiring and just so easy and so important, this conversation. So as we wrap it up, what's on your front burner now? What is it that you're focusing on and would like to do? Is there another book? Is there another movie? Ooh, Where are you ooh, going? Ooh, well, let me just say, I need a break, right? Because, <laughs> do you think? Um, <laughs> because it, it took a lot out of me, I have to say, with these two projects. I, don't, I think I underestimated in some ways um, the amount of time and energy. But on the other hand, COVID in some ways has given me that time back because since there's nothing to do on the weekend, oh, I'm recording the audio part of the book, you know, so people can find it obviously on Amazon, but they can also find it on my website, ladiesleading.net. The other thing that I've been doing is I also, during that process over the last year, got a coaching certificate, a life coaching certificate. So there, there were there were three things that... Uh, Who's going to deliver your eulogy? Oh, oh I don't know. It's going to take a know. long time. <laughs> well, but, but you see, my, my youngest just graduated from college this year. And so now this was a time period where I felt like, okay, I can really go back to some of those projects that I really wanted to do. And so coaching is one of those areas that I'm actually exploring. I'm exploring it with my students but I'm also exploring it with people who are making transitions. So um, I also launched a coaching business over the course of the last year. And I really want to coach people around microaggressions. And that sort of came out of the book because so many of the women talked about the types of microaggressions that they had experienced. And it really got me researching microaggressions just in general. So Chester Pierce, a Black man at Harvard, actually coined the phrase microaggression back in the 1970s. Mm. And so what's interesting about that history is that often it takes a generation or two for words to become part of the public lexicon. You know, people talk about microaggressions all the time now, although I don't think they always really understand what it really means and what the history is behind it. So I'm thinking about this coaching around this area because I know people are still experiencing microaggressions, but the question is, what do you do about them? And how do you begin to take ownership of how you manage those, regardless of whether you're in a work world, whether you're in a classroom, or whether you're starting to retire? So so that's the project that I'm sort of working on. But it's interesting, even this afternoon, I have a call with a South African contact, and she wants to do a documentary. So I may get into some, I don't know, consulting with people who've never done a documentary before, because again, I had never done a documentary before, but my news background, you know, gave me certain instincts. Oh, sure. About, street cred and yeah. About, about how to put it together. Right? For sure. I have another group at Northwestern. Um, they are looking to do a documentary on some of the first Black women who were tenured at the university. The key uh-huh. is, right, Uh, And and some of these women, too, are in their 70s and 80s now. And again, they want their story documented and they want their story told. The key is always funding, though, right? That's the one thing I learned about the documentary world. That's the job, yeah. It is, oh my God, you could spend all of your time trying to raise money. I know, the worst. And never do anything, right? So -hmm. what I realized when getting proposals for the documentaries they want to do is that you know, I put in $150,000 worth of work almost, I hear you. Or, mm-hmm. or maybe $200,000 mm-hmm. worth worth of mm-hmm. work. And so that's what I could bring to the project that maybe the average person cannot. 
it's a beautiful world out there, uh, or it can be, depending on how we how we see it and how we make it. And I'm hoping that I can be able to assist in some of those other projects that people are wanting to do, because there, there are so many stories out there that need to be told. Well, I think that's basically a no-brainer. So here's the deal, Ava. You'll come back and you'll talk about those projects with us. Absolutely. This has been a joy, Sandy. Well, it really it's has been, been so fascinating and so easy. And I love what I do. I mean, the best women. It's yes, just terrific. Yes. And you really are inspirational. And in a way, kind of matter of fact about it. You know what it is you needed to do and you do it. And that also speaks volumes, being in front of a classroom and sharing that with students. Absolutely. And I want students to see their professor also has another life beyond just the classroom and that I'm still doing things that are important to me. You know, I've pivoted to podcasts as well. So the book has a podcast companion to go with it. And I'm going to be pivoting to include women in other fields as well, not just women in journalism. So it's an exciting time for me and and I'm enjoying it. Sounds dynamite. Well, thank you so much for sharing your passions in your life with us. It's been terrific. You're welcome. And thank you for having me. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 